Dig at harryshill.net and Facebook Harry Brown's Farm. It's 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, this month we observed the 50th anniversary of the U.S. War on Poverty. Um, Lyndon Johnson uh, set that program up just after he became president, after Kennedy's assassination. And um, his long history of looking at poverty um, really from his own experience. And then when he became president, this became one of his first kind of signature pieces of legislation that he put forward. So we're going to talk about um, the so-called War on Poverty. And one of the folks um, that, that, that can help us with that... Um, is now heading up the uh, uh, community action program called the Washington Hancock Community Action uh, Program. Mark Green is with us. Welcome to you, Mark. Thank you, Ron. And he's brought with um, him uh, Bobby Harris. Um, Bobby, you've been um, had probably many positions with Washington Hancock Community HSP, but one of the things that you're working on now is working with uh, homeless vets, I understand. Yes, I am. Well, glad to have you with us. Thank you. And glad to welcome back Barbara Pepe. Barbara um, co-hosted with me, I think, uh, several years ago on the program called Common Health. And uh, so we're glad to have Barbara back in the studio. She's now with the um, Healthy Peninsula Project in the Blue Hill area. Welcome. Thanks, Ron. Good to be back. Sure. Well, let's let's um, first of all find out a little bit more about each of you, um, how you came to the, your work, a little bit about your agencies or organizations, and then we'll have a broader discussion. Mark, can we start with you and just ask a little bit more about um, how you came to this work and then what is the Washington Hancock Community Agency? Sure. Great. Thank you, Ron. Uh, I was a town manager down in the southern part of the state for about 30 years. And uh, when my kids finished up college and I finished up paying for it, we decided we would come up to this part of the state, which is an area we really love. And uh, I've always been in, interested in poverty. My my last uh, job was in the town of Sanford. I was town manager there. And Sanford has, has a lot of social issues and a lot of uh, problems with low income and all the associated problems. So I learned a lot and got involved a lot there uh, with the issues. So when I saw uh, this position available up in Hancock, Washington County, I jumped on it and was lucky enough to have been selected for the job. Anyway, Washington Hancock Community Association has actually been around since the mid-1960s. We do a variety of things. Primarily, we do the low income heat assistance program. We provide transportation to folks. We do weatherization and home repair. We help homeless veterans, which is Bobby's primary job right now. We even sell used cars. We have a facility right here in Blue Hill called Friendship Cottage, uh, which is a um, 
a place where we take care of provide uh, adult day service and we also have a program called at home down east would help which helps to keep seniors in their homes mm. so as part of um, the, the administration's um, so-called war on poverty the Washington Hancock Community Agency was one of those groups that was set up really to funnel um, federal funds direct direct service to folks who are are, are impoverished exactly mm. Mm. Bobby, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got started in this work. Well, um, I was born and raised in Winter Harbor and l- actually lived in poverty um, growing up. And at the ripe old age of 17, I joined the United States Navy, served for 22 years. And um, after I retired, I came back here and applied for a, a position taking LIHEAP applications. And I've been with the agency for about 10 years at this mm-hmm. point and pretty much have done basically every job in the agency except Mark's job. <laughs> <laughs> and and growing up in Winter Harbor, um, the Navy, there used to be a Navy base there. Did that influence your it choice did, of it service? Did. Yes, it did. Yes. That's what made me, drove me in that uh-huh. area. Because you probably knew some of the Navy personnel yes, and their, their children and yes. so on growing up. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we'll come back to you in, in just a minute. Okay. Uh, Barbara, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you've worked in this area and with issues around poverty for, for many years. Yes, I have, Ron. Um, well, I started um, my professional career as a VISTA volunteer. That's what they called it back in the 70s, coming out of, again, the war on poverty, a now called AmeriCorps VISTA, doing community building in, in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and I, I moved into the social services field fairly quickly and spent 20 years um, working with uh, Child and Family Opportunities that sponsors Head Start in Down East Maine, Hancock and Washington County. So I worked, I feel like I'm a warrior on the battlefield with and on behalf of people who live in poverty and have been my whole life. Um, And more recently, um, in 2001, I began to work for Healthy Peninsula. I was the the founding director for Healthy Peninsula. And while we had a public health agenda, do have a public health agenda, we've had a keen interest in uh, those uh, people in our communities who who are most disenfranchised, and that includes children, the elderly, people in poverty. So we've been doing a lot of work around those issues. And our mission really is to is to improve the health and well-being of the communities that we serve. And our service area is the um, uh, Deer Isle Stonington and um, the Blue Hill Peninsula. So I, two unique things I think about Healthy Peninsula. One is we don't provide services. We are more... Um, I guess you would say as a catalyst for change, a change agent, and we've done a lot of work kind of behind the scenes to make positive change in our communities around health. It was actually Healthy Peninsula who convened a group of people concerned about elders in our community years ago, and out of that bubbled up with Tim King, the former director of WHCA, um, and a huge fundraising effort that um, we, one of our Uh, advisory board members was behind raised a million dollars to purchase a building and renovate it and get it started and WHCA took the leadership to uh, carry that forward and and it's a it's a gold star uh, five star gold star uh, adult day services program so um, and the second way in which I think we're unique other than the Blue Hill Memorial Hospital with whom we um, have a collaboration we serve a region, a very distinct region, the Blue Hill Peninsula and Deer Isle Stonington. So it's um, with our unique role and with our unique population base or service area base, I think we um, have had the opportunity to really get deeply engaged with community issues and with residents in the community and uh, 
you know, make really positive change happen. So, mm. And so the, uh, we'll come back to that. I think the, the notion of, of the, the difference between providing direct service and being more this catalyst or community development organization mm-hmm. that helps people um, look at those issues. And I think those get blurred because I know that um, some of the work that uh, Mark and his colleagues does is, is around this community building mm-hmm. notion too. Let's let's go back and, and look at the... the, the, uh, the creation of CAP agencies, um, community yeah. action programs. Mark, um, as a town manager, you were um, probably uh, the overseer of the poor in some that, of your that, communities. That's correct. That's that old term. And, yeah. and so at, at one point, towns had the responsibility for taking care of people who were destitute. That is correct. You know, most towns in Maine had a town farm. And in fact, if you drive around a lot of towns around here, you'll see a town farm road and so on. And uh, in Sanford, the town farm evolved into a, a nursing home over time. So the towns really way back did have a farm, and then that evolved into a general assistance program that still exists today. And that's really to help people with emergency needs, sort of one-time needs when people are really destitute. So, um, again, I, as I recall, um, uh, Johnson um, had been influenced by um, Bobby Kennedy. He didn't really like Bobby Kennedy, but he was influenced by Bobby Kennedy, um, who had done this tour of, the, of mostly the rural South um, in, in, in President um, Kennedy's um, administration, influenced the thinking in Washington about this, this issue. That led to the CAP agencies. Um, can you know much more about the history? Well, well you know, I was... In preparing for this program, I I was really glad you asked me to be on this because it really made me go back and look at some of this history. And what I think was I actually watched uh, Johnson's uh, 1964 State of the Union uh, address this morning just Mm -hmm. to get a flavor of it. But he grew up in in poverty. His father was apparently a very prominent local politician, initially fell on hard times. And Johnson survived, his family survived by essentially the generosity of his community. So I think that in addition to what he got from the Kennedys, that was a big driver for him. Mm. So um, what do you sense has, has changed over um, the last um, 30 years in terms of 50 years in terms of how cap agencies have have kind of evolved do you have a sense yeah. of that well initially uh, when the caps were first set up they received their funding directly from the federal government the idea was to keep local and state politics out of it it was truly a community action uh, organization where they wanted to empower the community and let them go out, find out what problems they have, and solve those problems. A little technical difficulty. Mark is he's 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 using his hands, and his headphones fell off. So it's just fine, Mark. It's just fine. Thank you, thank you. I'll uh, I'll keep my hands in my lap from here on out. In any case, they uh, it was really intended to go right out and and get people in the communities to find out what the problems are to solve them. That has evolved over time, and now most of the money we receive, unfortunately, comes through the state, uh, which imposes a number of restrictions on how it's spent and so on. So we have, I think, evolved, and initially we really went out and did all these new programs and initiated things. We still do some of that, and what Barbara talked about with Friendship Cottage is a really good example where the community decided that was a need. The community got together. WHCA tried to facilitate it. We still do that with Friendship Cottage, At Home Down East, 
our Helping Hands Garage, but we also run core programs that are state programs like the Transportation LIHEAP that are important as well, but they're very prescribed by the state. Mm. So it strikes me as that the original, one of the original intents was to, to jump over state and local government who were in some ways part of the problem and create a way to get um, uh, funds and services directly to people um, organized in, in local communities. And now um, that's shifted. That has shifted. But right. still, some of it is still there. And from my perspective, that's some of the fun stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The more creative stuff. Exactly. Right. And and we're really able, like the Helping Hands Garage program, we sell about 60 cars a year to low-income folks. We get donations. We acquire them at auctions. We fix them up. And this allows people to get to work, health appointments, and all those different things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. But that was something that the community decided was important, and they went out and they got it done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Bobby, tell us a little bit more about um, growing up and then the decision to come back to this area and and get involved, and and we'll talk more about homeless vets. Okay. Um, Growing up, when I was growing up, um, we had food distribution and uh, food stamps that were, you know, paper food stamps. And um, there was... um, not that there was a stigma back then. Um, it just was, that's, there was really no stigma to being poor. Um, although I knew that I needed to get away from here to um, further myself. Uh-huh. Um, I uh, actually, the Navy was a big influence and, um, and that w- it really um, helped to expand my my view of everything and educated right. sure, sure. and um then when i retired it was i just i've just had the draw to come back here mm. and um and where i had been poor and i was out of the poverty at this point um the agency just seemed like a good fit to mm. help others right. and um and what what again i guess but tell us the story of, of beginning to work with homeless vets and and their their story well i I've, i have a passion for veterans number mm. one mm. and my son um has done a tour in afghanistan and iraq and um has suffered from ptsd when he he returned and so the homeless veterans actually washington county has the highest per capita veterans in the the whole state so we we had the population to serve and homeless homelessness in rural maine is far different than in portland and bangor and um most of the time it's veterans that are at risk uh, because uh, we don't have shelter. We have a shelter here in Ellsworth, but that's full all the time. So a lot of times people are living in um, campers or they're couch surfing from one house to the next. And those are the, one, those are the veterans that we um, see where, that we're servicing and um, just trying to you know, stabilize their situation and get them back into their uh, living situation that they they can take care of themselves and our program does that we case manage the veteran and their family and provide um, assistance financial assistance to them Um, we can we get them transportation to togas to help them with their va benefits we walk them through the va system 
so that they can receive their benefits. So mm. it's a it's an all-encompassing program to mm. take care of the veteran and their family and stabilize them. We certainly don't do a very good job with that as a society, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> I had the pleasure of interviewing Roxana Robinson, whose novel Sparta talks mm-hmm. about the returning vet from, from Afghanistan, uh, right. Iraq, and uh, PSD and PSTD, and, and right. those issues are, are significant. Right. And so how do you find folks? How do you locate folks who may need your services? Quite honestly, we do a lot of outreach. We go to town offices. We go to the food pantries. Um, we work very closely with the uh, um, military service officer in Machias who refers veterans over to us and uh, Togus, the VA system, refers a lot of people to us. But most of it is just outreach and getting out into the community. And um, because veterans sometimes don't um, like to say they have a problem or that they, you know, are at risk of becoming homeless or so a lot of times you just have to build a relationship and um, and eventually they they will come and ask for help. Mm. So yeah, their their training has been to get it done to right. to be self sufficient in that way or rely on their their colleagues. Um, it's probably harder to right. rely on society to, to, to take care right, of you. Right. right, right. So and and they they really don't believe that they are um, that they've done anything special. And that's a lot of times that's why they don't present is that, you know, they just did what they had to do. And um, so when they suffer from PTSD and other um, things like that, they they think they're they're um, not strong. Hmm. So they, they just don't like to ask for help. So sure, sure. So um, they end up in poverty because um, they may be struggling with mental illness or right. mental um, mm-hmm. difficulty. But they also don't necessarily have jobs. No. A lot of the returning um, veterans now, uh, they've done very specific areas of, you know, that really there are no jobs. No civilian equivalent. Right, exactly. Right. So right. they're coming back, and if they, they're they suffering from PTSD or mental health, or a lot of them suffer from substance abuse because of the um, PTSD. So that those are barriers for them getting jobs. But we've been working a lot with um, local businesses, and um, they a lot of the businesses and, and employers are willing to um, work with veterans now. So... Um, it, that's really good to see. So, so take, there's a lot of support. Taking them where they are, what what training they have had for right. those military jobs, and then saying, how can we translate that? Right, over right. to right. civilian right. world. Yes. Well, I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Our topic is, where is poverty now? And in the studio, you've just heard from Bobby Harris, um, uh, Washington Hancock Community Agency. She's joined by Mark Green, also of the WHCA, and Barbara Pepe of Healthy Peninsula. A little later on, we'll open up our phone lines and we'll ask you for your experience and your uh, questions about where is poverty now. Um, So we've heard a little bit about veterans. Where do other people kind of um, cross the line and get into poverty? What are some of the issues that um, the families mark that you're serving what leads them to that that side is it is it systems is it um, lack of jobs what are some of the, the causes of poverty that you're you're observing? You know what one uh problem we have like a lot of uh, areas have is we do have quite a bit of general generational poverty where people have grown up uh, in poverty and have been unable to get out of it 
And uh, we, we got an opportunity to go see a woman named Donna Beagle this summer, and I think last summer she was mm-hmm. here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's someone who grew up in poverty. Her family was a were um, migrant farm workers, I believe. And she tells some very interesting stories about generational poverty and how, for example, you know, that typically people who are in generational poverty don't know people that got a college education or even a high school education. They don't know people who have held steady jobs. So their whole peer group uh, isn't doesn't really understand a lot of these issues and how to bring themselves out of the situation they're in. And, and I get that. You know, I live in my own world, too, and my mind's a different world. But, you know, I didn't understand how people in poverty live until, really, I, I'm learning about it every day. Mm. And um, I, I think uh, our society blames those folks too much for their situation. In many cases, that's all they've ever known. And, and I think we as an agency and we as a society need to work harder to help those people out of those situations rather than stigmatize them and so on, which I think we do far too much of. So so just to pick up on that and then yeah. to come to Barbara, because I think that that larger community, uh, larger community um, conversation about the um, origins of poverty, uh, the structural difficulties, and then what do we do about it is something that you can add to. But the, the notion that, Mark, you, you were saying that you grew up um, more in the middle in class. Middle class, So yeah. you yeah. knew that, um, well, um, people went to college or went to higher education yeah. of some sort or maybe used the military as a way mm-hmm. to gain skills and that that led to that education led to a job um, that um, was paying you know reasonably good wages um, maybe the opportunity to get yeah. ahead through through that process yeah. um, and probably there was a sense that oh, um, a st- stable job then led to um, a home <laughs> house um, that yeah. you could own and, and invest in so that you had a place, uh, exactly. kind of a, a stable place. You're saying that the generational poverty folks might not have recognized oh, those things. That's exactly right. You know, I knew from the start that I was going to college because my father made that very clear to me. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was going to own a house. I knew all these things because all my peer group right. uh, had those sort of things. So it was... I just knew that, and I, I guess with the gener- folks who are living in general po- po- generational poverty, excuse uh-huh. me, don't have those same expectations. They don't have those resources. They, you know, their peer group is an entirely different group of people. They're not bad people. They're great people, but they they've right. got a completely different perspective. And a lot of the programs we run are just maintenance programs. They help people get oil, or they help uh, somebody get their house weatherized, or something. We don't do as much proactive work as we should to help folks. And in Bobby's situation, you saw um, the children um, perhaps growing up of, of Navy families, and you say, oh, that's a different path. Right. I can and get out of what my situation right. is. Right. Yeah. Like, it, like they, they had everything. Uh-huh. And so that was a goal for me. Right. And to see that was... Um, it, it gave me an ins- it inspired me and and Mark was talking about education. Um, for me, that was that's what helped me further, you know, get through the poverty and then and further myself. Um, just education is it, it just lifts you. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I thought that that when Mark said that about education, that really mm-hmm. hit home for me because that's what brought me to where I am. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So those expectations, Barbara, uh, around education start at that very early age. And Head Start was all about trying to figure out, okay, are there ways to kind of lift everybody up by giving people a common set of young young children, a common set of experiences in a classroom, helping them succeed and see a different vision, perhaps? Yes, I think that's true. And I think <clears throat> I want to reflect on something that... Um, Mark was talking about, and it gets back to this whole war on poverty, there were some underlying theories, I think, that this war on poverty were built on. And one of them, which I think is sort of negative reflection on the war, was that it's the person themselves who are at fault. Mm. And Mark talked about that. There was a theory of, uh, it was called the culture of poverty theory, um, and that those people, those policymakers who instituted Head Start and the, the CAP agencies, really um, believed that the target was changing the person themselves. It was not looking at the systems. It was not looking at providing equal opportunities in education. And I'll get to a minute to what we're doing down in the Blue Hill Peninsula about this. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that it wasn't about social justice. It wasn't about economic justice. It wasn't about jobs. It was really about um, changing the people themselves. I think for the children in Head Start, in my experience, um, they blossomed and they did have an opportunity to um, step up into kindergarten with many more, um, I think, benefits uh, educationally, socially, in a lot of ways than um, those children who lived in poverty who didn't have that experience. For the parents, they're, and this is, I think, the flip side of the coin, the really positive thing, and I know this is true for the CAP agencies, it was built into policy, the active voice of parents in shaping policy. And I think that if there's anything that I can say that uh, really created change for families and empowered families was their ability and it was their mandate and we were mandated and I think um, the, the CAP agency is too to have people on the board of directors to have Head Start has a policy council and it is consisted only of parents you know so you have a group of parents talking about what the policy should be for their kids and their and and for themselves so I think it was kind of a mixed um I guess, policy as it got pushed out. And I think that the the reason that some of these programs has survived has been because of the strength of the families themselves and the voice that they um, had and were helped to be empowered in that process. So and with regard to education, I think this is a theme. And um, the uh, Healthy Peninsula in 2011 um, really began to be concerned mainly out of school uh, failure rates and the high percentage of children, uh, specifically on Deer Isle, 25% of the kids with diagnosed special needs, that um, were raised the community's concern that we need to do really focus on kids, and we needed to focus on kids early on. Early intervention has been demonstrated to show positive impacts. Head Start's been one of those programs, but early intervention around children who have disabilities and um, living in poverty, you know, what can be done early on. So that group, uh, the Early Childhood Work Group, pulled together a conference on uh, early childhood in 2011 in Castine. It was very well attended. Uh, there's been two subsequent conferences. This last October, we had Donna Beagle was in the state, and she was in Machias, and she was at the university and up in Piscataquis County, and she spent a day with us. 150 people from the community showed up, schools, business community, the medical community, uh, interested uh, com- you know, community members 
to really hear from Donna about her experience with poverty and what needed to be done. And I think the themes that, to me, rise up are um, the ability to get a hand up. I don't mean a hand up, a hand out, to take hold of something. And uh, Bobby's case, it was the military and education. In Donna's case, it was a mentor who encouraged mm-hmm. her to further her education, to get her GED, to get an associate's degree, to go on. She's got a Ph.D., this woman. So, um, and I think, you know, the, you know, having opportunities, I think our interest is in having opportunities for children and young families on the peninsula and Deer Isle to um, have those connections with people, to broaden that vision, to um, see what other possibilities are, and then for them and their families to make those decisions. So, um, so the, 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 the theory that you mentioned um, was to change the individual. That wasn't necessarily wrong, but what's added to that in the last um, number of years is really looking at the structural causes of poverty and figuring out what policies we could put in place to attack those. Mm-hmm. If we're going to use the military model of war, mm-hmm. we need to attack those structural issues, which are around education, uh, around um, jobs and, and um, job training, those kinds of things. So um, as you um, look at the community that you're working in um, and, and Donna Beagle's um, thing, what do you think she sparked? What, what? Well, she sparked a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of people... We had a follow-up meeting um, a couple of Saturdays. Cause I don't think it was January 11th. Mm-hmm. Ice storm, right? Mm-hmm. And we had 40-plus people show up after the conference to talk about where to take all of this. And uh, the reflections early on were really... Uh, mo- there was one person at this meeting who lived in poverty. Everybody else, school people, people from the faith community... Um, and I think the awareness about what that experience is, much as Mark has just described, what biases those of us who have not lived in poverty have about um, people who do live in poverty. And, and I think there is this tendency to blame people who live in poverty for their own condition without thinking beyond that. So this group, I think, um, is there's a lot of energy going on. People are interested in doing something on the policy level, you know, talking to our local legislators, gubernatorial candidates about what the impact for poverty and on particularly on young children, but also on our on our older population. Um, there are people interested in looking at um, further um, education for professionals, for teachers, for early childhood providers around. Uh, poverty itself what what is that what what are the circumstances of poverty and having a sensitivity to um you know to what it's what it's like to be living in poverty um and there's um also interest i think in helping the community better understand what poverty is so there's there is a group of people working on sort of public relations or sandy phoenix actually um wrote a really uh, stunning article in uh, the Penobscot Bay Press in October, just about poverty with statistics. And part of it is raising the community awareness about this in a non, in an unbiased way. Mm-hmm. So that's um, that's the movement going forward. There, there are a lot. There's a lot. The Blue Hill Peninsula and, and Deer Isle and Stonington are unique in some ways because we don't have a lot of nonprofits that actually live there. We have services from nonprofits. So there's been a, a real, I think it's sort of a bottom-up approach. There's, there are a lot of supports for people, uh, including uh, community meal programs. Uh, the food pantries are superb in our area. 
there's a lot of there's now a free clinic going on um, in the, the same place that the uh, simmering pot the Monday uh, community uh, meals program mm-hmm. is so there's a lot going on already that people have taken on but I, I think um, it's it's taking people to a higher level of awareness I think and uh, trying to figure out the actions that are going to the one thing that um, I think there's a real commitment to is hearing directly from people themselves. There's a tendency in human services, social services, and I've been here a long time, for those of us who are doing this to figure out, and policymakers do this, this is what people need and want uh, without ever asking them. So we're, uh, I think there's a real commitment to try to hear directly from people and organize uh, people who are living in poverty and in a way that they can determine what they need and want from their community and help make that happen. Mm. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Our topic is Where is Poverty Now? In the studio we have Barbara Pepe, just heard from from Healthy Peninsula in the Blue Hill area, Um, Bobby Harris and Mark Green, both of Washington Hancock Community Agency. We'd like your phone calls and your um, input to our discussion. Uh, Perhaps you have experience um, being in poverty or perhaps you've got questions for our guests. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. Mark, you mentioned um, your automobile program. Uh, Bobby, you mentioned the homeless vets program um what's your experience of involving people who actually are in poverty not just the 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 folks like us who might be middle class thinking about these things what's the experience you say that the 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 car program the transportation program came from a need that was expressed by people who are struggling with transportation one of our challenges actually is involving people who live Mm. in poverty. They're busy with their lives. I think they're intimidated by the process and so on. So that is actually one of our challenges. Our board is made up of 18 people from Hancock and Washington County. Six of those are supposed to be from people who are living in poverty or representatives of those folks. And we are challenged every year trying to find folks to fill those slots. In the past, when there was a little bit more money, we would do focus groups and things like that. We really don't have the resources to do that. So actually, one of our challenges is trying to find what people out there really need. Mm. And I think we do it mostly on our on our gut. In part, many of our employees are folks who came from that situation. And in many cases, we don't pay very well, still exist in that situation. Mm. So we get a lot of feedback from them. But but uh, we would like to find ways and are really open to suggestions on how we can get more folks who live in poverty and have experience in that area get on our board and get involved with our programs and help us find out what we ought to do. Bobby, do any of the um, the vets that you're working with, um, do they move into positions of saying, I'm going to speak for my colleagues? Um, do they, do they um, begin to understand that that's a role they could play or is that st- it's still a struggle? It's still a struggle because mm-hmm. I, I think this uh, a big thing that I see with a lot of the clients that we that we have at WHCA and and the veterans is that the systems itself of um, having to apply for the the benefits it, it's become way over cumber, cumbersome I mm-hmm, guess mm-hmm. having to prove that you are poor. Um, and sometimes that stops people from asking for the help that they really do need just to meet their basic needs. And um, I think just treating the individual the po- people in poverty with respect, um, and the system doesn't 
treat them with respect. So they don't even want to deal with it a lot of times. So so you mentioned not feeling a stigma as you were growing up, right. but needing to have assistance. Um, you feel that stigma is more pronounced now. I believe so because the system itself is is overbearing for a mm-hmm. lot of people. And it, and it, um, when you're in poverty, you know you're in poverty. <laughs> and to have to prove that you're in poverty to get a little bit of assistance just to meet your basic needs sometimes will stop people from asking for help. Mm. Barbara, you've, again, your, your work is in, in uh, the community, um, social work background. Are there some ways in which we can better engage people who are living in poverty? Well, I think I want to go back to my experience with Head Start because I think there was a really powerful group of parents who got together who were selected from one of 10 centers at the time to uh, almost like represent them and they would get together monthly over a meal and it was there was one staff person there and i think if there's an intimidation around being at a table with a whole bunch of professionals so i think that model in my experience was probably the most profound um experience that i had because those parents of course loved their children they had ideas and solutions themselves for what could um, happen to make things better for for their themselves and their families. Um, so and the just up- getting just getting people in a circle, <laughs> right, <laughs> to right, have a conversation without, about what they want, right, what they need, without a whole lot of professional people. And I think Donna has Donna Beagle, Donna Beagle has a, a a program called Opportunity Communities, which is uh, a model that's been used internationally in other places. But her focus on this is bringing people who live in poverty, generational poverty, together themselves with someone like her um, who understands, uh, roll out the red carpet for these people, have them spend a day, help them, sort of help empower them. So it's, I think there's a real need to bring people together, um, and it's a challenge to figure out how to do it with in the context of the service delivery system we have. The other thing is, um, I think strategically, is going to where people are. We just, this one person who lived in poverty, this mother who came to our Saturday meeting, um, put together a survey and she's distributing at the Tree of Life where people come on Thursdays and get their food and she's gathering data from people herself. And again, it's a, it's a person-to-person connection with a person, um, Tina, who really does understand the experience. Mm. So you can get information from those people that way, and that's a potential for uh, coalescing a group of people. But I think, you know, being the one or two or three token representatives for anything, you know, whether it's being a woman or whether it's being a, a person of color or whether it's a person in poverty, is a hard sell, I think. Mm. Let's uh, take a f- couple phone calls. Um, if you're interested in participating, participating in our conversation about where is poverty now, give us a call at one 625 9378 We have one caller on the line, at least, and uh, go ahead, give us your first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, go ahead. Great, Steve from Northport. My, my comment more is that it is a long-term uh, solution that I hear you know, a lot of people saying, and I, and I get that. The main thing is that Head Start and programs of that nature, that that's where you starve off poverty because there are people who are impoverished in America, but we all know that nobody's dying in America from 
lack of having some sort of food, uh, you know, it happens with shelter. But, but there is food available. But, but the real reality comes down to is local control. The, the beauty of our country is local control. And where I'm sitting right now, I can look up and down uh, the street, and, and do I see someone in need or do I see someone in poverty? Well, when I do, I try to help them. Right. But when you have a giant, if you say you have to go to Augusta or down to Bitterford or all the way up to Fort Kent, you talk of all these areas uh, in a large state solution, it doesn't work. What mm-hmm. it works is in your neighborhood and in your block. And uh, when when someone can see somebody in poverty, that's an uh, obvious sign that uh, society has a difficult decision to make. And what it really comes down to is money. Mm. Uh, is the money going to be put into early childhood education? Because we all know how to get out of poverty. And, mm. and everybody can say, well, you don't or you do. But the real reality is everybody knows how to get out of poverty, what you need is the motivation and and the motivation comes from education of your own self-worth and that was kind of my comment i sure appreciate you letting me take time to speak on your show well Thank we're you. so glad that you called thanks so much for calling let's take our second call um if you'd give us your first name the town you're calling from and uh, then go ahead with your comment that would be great we're we're hold on just a minute we're trying to make that yes they're they're not there now go ahead with your question or comment please yes go ahead well, we'll try 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 back. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you'd like to participate in our conversation about poverty today, so th- this notion of of uh, starting at the local level, when you see something, <laughs> try to do something. That that notion. I think seems to me that Donna Beagle, um, you know, was trying to inspire that. Um, Mark your your uh, program uh, of of uh, automobiles or the. Um, Friendship Cottage came out of that community. People saying at the local level, let's do something. Let's uh, go ahead and take another phone call. Um, give us your first name, the town you're calling from, and go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead. Hello. Yes. This is Bessie calling from Blue Hill, and I would like to suggest, as a person myself living in poverty due to chronic illness, that the indignity of the experience of getting helping services is what keeps so many people away Mm. and hundreds of people that i have spoken to on the streets as homeless talk about how they've been alienated from getting help from the indignity and i would just like to invoke a moment of consciousness about the use of the word folks when you are referring to people in poverty when you are speaking about wealthy people you never use that word folks and it is so humiliating. And we are people. So please stop calling us folks. We are persons. We are people. We are not folks. Because when you say folks, you are continuing the stigma. Essie, thank thanks, you. Essie, thanks so much for your call and for your um, sharing your experience. I guess, Ron, that's for me to respond to. <laughs> Not necessarily. I think that <laughs> no, was just a conscious. No, no and, I, and I appreciate it. And I, I just want to, one thing I struggle with is what to refer to 
low-income folks. I said it again, but I use that's a word I grew up with. I refer to everybody with, and I found I don't like to call people clients. I don't like some of the other references that stereotype people. So I have come up with that on my own, and I will certainly take what Betsy just said and rethink that. Great. We have a couple calls. Um, if you um, want to give us your uh, first name and where you're calling from, then go ahead with your question or comment. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Hi, I, I didn't hear that woman. There's something wrong with your line because I got disconnected too when I called in. Uh, was she talking about what the definition of poverty was? And no, um, she was talking about um, uh, how we refer to people who um, have a, a, a poverty as a situation. Yeah, that's, that's exactly two, two things, and I really appreciate the conversation. Um, the one woman there mentioned a health clinic uh, connected with the simmering pot. Uh-huh. And, but I also like to tune, uh, touch on, I think the reason why a lot of people have a hard time accepting help is they, they don't, a lot of people don't see themselves in a poverty uh, class. I mean, we live in Maine and a lot of people relate to, to nature and they're gardening and they're doing things like that. But um, I lost the ability to work for a while after both my parents died, and uh, I'm really <laughs> struggling in my hard time. And I, I don't consider myself in poverty. Right. I I feel as if I could use some help, and I'm definitely struggling, but uh, I'm not in that bracket. And uh, I, I I don't know. I somehow think poverty the word is a label, and and makes people feel. Mm-hmm. I, I know makes I say, I woke up this morning and think, oh my God, am I in poverty? And the <laughs> word itself just makes you shudder. Sure. Sure. Um, and uh, also, you forget the issues of classism, racism, and right. homophobia, and sexism. And uh, the m- mainstream culture definitely has a problem with <coughs> people who are different. Mm. So, um, but I appreciate this conversation. And if the person who mentioned uh, that the health clinic that associated with the simmering pot, I appreciate it. Great, great. Let's take one more phone call um, and see where um, this listener wants to take our conversation. Um, li- give us your first name, where you're calling from, and then go ahead. No, they've hung up. So one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. if you'd like to get back in touch. And as we talk about um, the issues um, connected with poverty, and, and as this last caller said, maybe it's the, the just the use of the word. It's hard to find another word um, because it's, it's so accepted. And, and these programs are designed to help people who do not have great incomes. Well, I, can I just, yeah. I'd like to speak to that because I think, you know, we think about poverty, we think about it as an economic issue. But there are people who are poor in spirit. There are people who are feeling impoverished because they are isolated. You know, and I think reframing this notion of poverty, I think it's important to deepen and further our understanding. So I really appreciate both those last two callers because that's exactly what people like me need to hear. Mm. We need to be put in our place, really. But uh, I'd like to think about it in a a broader context because... uh, we might be impoverished in health. Uh, that's right. right. I mean, I think it's a huge issue. I think people are struggling with many people with disabilities or with uh, chronic health conditions, and uh, they've had tremendous loss in their lives around those uh, circumstances. And, you know, so there's a, there's a whole world out there of uh, experience that, um, you know, I'm really keen on, and I appreciate the show, I'm really keen on hearing you know, from those people who are in those situations. Let's take another couple of phone calls. Go ahead um, with your first name, the town you're calling from, and, and your question or comment, please. 
Hi, my name is Chris. I'm from Bangor. And I, I just wanted to broaden this conversation a little bit to say that um, I think that we need to change the way we think about how we spend money in this country, period. And I, I think that there's this notion that we can continue to give all this foreign aid and all these things. Many of these conditions that have resulted in these low-income situations are by government policies, NAFTA and other trade agreements that have you know, really hurt Maine, hurt Maine's economy, and hurt Maine's self-esteem. And I think that, you know, it's unfair that we villainize these people um, when they have little or nothing to do with the contributing factors that led to their lack of opportunity. Mm. So, and I think that, you know, the critics say, well, you can't link foreign aid and, and domestic aid. And I would flip it and say that we have to have that conversation. And we have to, we have to reprioritize about how we talk about this whole issue. And I think that we, we need to make a shift away from this military complex, these wars. And if we don't change the conversation, it will not change. And the people that say, you know, that I'm, uh, you know, simplifying a complex problem, I, I would again flip it on them and say they're trying to make a simple solution complicated. And so, um, you know, I appreciate the conversation here. And I, I would just tell everybody, you know, that, that feels down, um, you know, it doesn't last forever and just, you know, keep fighting. And I've been there. I've felt it. And, uh, you know, I've managed to work out of it. And, um, you know, I would encourage other people to do the same. And But but let's talk to our senators. Let's talk to our congressmen. And let's, let's change how we spend money in this country. Great. Thanks so much right, for your call. You. We have one more call on the line. Let's uh, go ahead with that call. Your first name, if you would, um, the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, this is Yo in Tremont. Poverty is really inequality, and it's inequality that powers the financial system. People are trained to be appalled at poverty. Can they be trained to be appalled at profligate wealth and wasteful spending? Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Well, thanks, Yo. Um, this notion of income inequality is becoming a national topic. We hear it from um, Washington, but we also hear it um, locally. Um, the vast difference between those who have great means and those who do not have great means. Is that entering into any of the conversations you're having at the local level, this notion of income inequality? Um, you know, in this, in this part of Maine, we, we um, know many of the people who have wealth, and we ask them for support. <laughs> so in, in some ways, we're, we're dealing with that at the local level and saying, can we, can we have some of that um, uh, means to support these local programs? But that, those aren't the, the income inequality that really is, is driving this. Um, are there, are there conversations about that um, at, at the local level, Mark? I really think, Ron, they're really separate issues. Mm. Uh, certainly, personally, I have some strong feelings about that, but I'm more focused on how can we help the folks in yeah. Washington and Hancock County. And uh, I just I think our job is to do what we can for the people that live in these two counties. And I think that's a national debate that we have to have, an important one. But I'm more interested in how can we get more resources here and how can we help these folks. And I just want to address one thing that one of the callers yes. had because I thought it, she hit the nail right in the head when she talked about the, the indignity of the process. And that's something we work real hard to try to – make not as bad. A lot of the rules we follow are rules that are imposed upon us and we have to 
do, but we try to be respectful of the folks and so on. But it, it goes back to this whole thing about making people feel guilty for living in poverty. It's, it's just the whole system is wrong and needs to be fixed. And that's one of the, the biggest, biggest parts of the problem. Mm-hmm. It's all connected. Um, we have one more call, I think, on the line. Yes. Let's go ahead and take that. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi. Yes. Um, I would like to connect with that woman named Emmy who called up about... Essie, um, I think. Yeah, Essie. Effie from Blue Hill. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to have her meet me in Blue Hill. My name is Claudia. Everybody at the co-op knows me, and I want to talk with you. I really am fired up by what she talked about. I'm, uh, I've been poor almost all my life. I've lived on less than um, five or $6,000 a year. It's nuts. And um, uh, the conversation you guys are having is, is germane and appropriate, but uh, there's so much more to talk about. I would like to talk with her. So if she could um, connect with me through the co-op, and we'll get together and talk. Thank you. That's all I want to talk about. That's great. Thanks, and, and thanks to the Blue Hill Co-op for serving as that uh, place where people can meet and have important conversations. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. Uh, we're talking about where is poverty now in the studio with us are Mark Green and Bobby Harris of Washington Hancock Community Agency and Barbara Pepe of Healthy Peninsula. So what are your hopes uh, for the future? You know, we've, we've got a situation where um, the governor is talking about fraud, um, in, in programs that have to do with, with uh, serving people who have low incomes. Um, um, there's, a, there's a governor's race coming up. Um, there's politicians who are, who are seeking votes. Um, how, do you, how do you convince them that the programs you're uh, representing are important ones? Barbara? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm, I don't have that much faith myself anymore in the political process. Mm. I feel like this... This, you know, we're trying to climb uphill in sand or something. I think we've gone backwards in terms of addressing some of the real concerns for people in our country, all of us, for you know, and it's it's become very divisive in terms of economically and other ways. But I go back to the history here um, at the turn of the 20th century where there were movements. There was a uh, women's rights movements. There was a labor rights movements. We see this sort of uh, wave. Uh, of movements coming up through our history in the 60s. We had the civil rights movement, again, women, women's movements, the uh, disability rights movements, uh, gay rights movements. And I think we're at the precipice of a movement because of the uh, vast uh, discrepancy between people who have resources and people who don't. And I think my biggest hope lies there, mm. that there's some way in which people are going to get mad enough and concerned enough and can figure out a way to organize enough to take it on themselves because I frankly don't have much faith in uh, most of our, you know, local and and state uh, legislators. So the Occupy movement has some hope for you? Well, I think... Or the vestiges of what might come after that? I think... You know, I think it's... I, I think around this particular problem it needs to be people who are feeling it and, you know, without labels, without anything, where is it that, uh, you know, uh, and I think our, our callers have really been really clear. I don't know who those people are, but there's enough of us to join together um, to demand, yeah. you know, something. Let's take a final phone call um, for this hour. And uh, if, if you are ready to, to take that uh, phone call, we'll go ahead and get a um, person's name and, and uh, local town and where they're calling from. And go ahead with your comment, please. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, my name is Gil, and I live in uh, Castine. 
and I worked with Barbara on uh, some of the community actions that uh, that she just mentioned or mentioned during this program. I was really inspired by the uh, call, the last call that uh, wanted to meet with another call in, <laughs> right. and and it, it, it prompted me to ask if it's possible for the members of your panel this morning to give phone numbers uh, out so that if somebody in a local community wants to meet somebody who is uh, struggling with issues of poverty, uh, the people on your panel could be a, uh, a, a resource or a referral center. I don't know if that's possible, but uh, I was really excited when I uh, heard these people that uh, wanted to get together. And thank you very much for uh, doing this this morning. And Gil, thanks for all your work on, on these, these issues. Um, um, yes, Barbara, why don't you list your phone numbers, and we'll ask Mark to, to list his as well. Well, I can give you the number for Healthy Peninsula, um, but I also would uh, give you some other suggestions. So our number is 374-3257. That's in Blue Hill. That's 374-3257. You know, we... Um, are just sticking our toe in uh, more specifically around poverty issues. But there are many other um, organizations um, where people who are uh, in need of food or whatever. Uh, and I, so I would also suggest is one of the more viable organizations is the Tree of Life. In, uh, I don't have their number, but you can find it in the book. And they also have a clothing store, the Turnstile. And again, I would suggest WHCA. I mean, they are the, um, you know, really formal fo- poverty program, and they do have uh, people um, on their board that can mm-hmm. help connect. So, Mark, your phone number? Yeah, my my direct line is six one zero five nine zero four, and you can call anytime. There's a voicemail there. People can leave a message, and I will make certain to get back to them. And uh, Mark, uh, you want to might, might want to mention the um, fund, the Thoth Fund, and the concert tonight. Thank you very much, Ron. Yes, tonight the Knights of Columbus are sponsoring a benefit for our Thaw program. Thaw program is a program where we raise money to help people with heat, uh, and it's a program that we're much more flexible with. We can help a lot of those folks that just need help with one um, um, that might be over income and so on, but are just having a tough time this time of year. So it's tonight at 7 o'clock at the, at the Grand, and the Knights of Columbus are sponsoring that. And it seems like we have plenty more to talk, talk about. We could probably come back to these kinds of topics again. So thanks to all of you for, for being with us this morning. Um, I, I, Matt Murphy handed me a flyer to, to remind listeners that uh, the Homelessness Marathon is coming up on February 19th. WERU has uh, participated locally in, in the issue of homelessness, um, connecting to uh, people across um, the United States. So um, please uh, tune in uh, February 19th from 7 p.m to 1 a.m. Uh, the next day on the 20th, and uh, you'll learn a lot, and you'll hear from the voices of people who um, have these situations, who are in, in homeless situations. That's a really powerful program. Well, I want to remind uh, listeners that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association with offices in each county. Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balning House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests, Mark Green and Bobby Harris of Washington Hancock Community Agency and Barbara Pepe of Healthy Peninsula. 
Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and your wonderful experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes